Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On today's show we'll be talking about the recent MotoGP test at Jerez and taking a look back at the highs and lows of the 2015 season. I'm Tony Goldsmith of Asphalt and Rubber and Bike Sport News. You can also find me on my website at tonygoldsmith.net and with me today are... Uh, David Emmett of motomatters.com and Neil Morrison from Crash.net and Road Racing World. Before we get started, we hope you are following the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter at paddockpasspod. And if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, please be sure to leave a review and a rating. It greatly helps other MotoGP fans find the show. Okay, gentlemen, so where, where are we going to start for today's chat? Well, first of all, you've been to Macau, haven't you? I have, David, yes. Um, that was an interesting experience. Uh, I did go in 2012 when I, I tagged it on the end of a holiday uh, and had a, a couple of days there which I didn't feel as though I had the full Macau experience but I, I definitely got that this time and maybe a little bit more uh, yeah I mean, it, it looks to me I mean I don't watch much uh, much road racing at all but to me it just looks totally terrifying even more terrifying than um, uh, than the, the than the Irish road races uh, where they at least they're sort of fields and stuff but it's all barriers and um uh yeah barriers and and, and high siding into harbors i think uh yeah i mean it's um it's just line by arm code the all way around and it's funny you should say that actually about high siding into harbors because i was told when we were away that actually happened to uh gus scott uh i'm not sure how many years ago it would have been now but he he did actually crash at the final turn and ended up in the harbor <laughs> and uh, I think um, they managed to they managed to pull him out and resuscitate him, but it, it it could have been very nasty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, what what's the what's the interest in that sort of event? I mean, how many? What what's the fans like? Are there a lot of fans? It's it's a difficult race for for spectators because there's there's maybe only three sections to watch the racing from, and those three sections are all grandstands. So. I don't feel as though, as a spectator, you get a proper feel for it as a road race. Because obviously one of the main appeals for spectators at road racing is because you can get so close to the action. Whereas at Macau, you are sat in uh, in grandstands. And a part of that is the layout of the track. It goes through uh, a fast, quite open section at the start. And then it goes into a really tight, twisty section surrounded by... Uh, buildings where there's very little in the way of room for spectating or, or even taking photographs for that matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it must be a difficult place to actually shoot at. It's a, it's a pretty challenging challenging place, um, particularly uh, being a relative newcomer. Uh, I think on one evening I, I spent a fair bit of time poring over Google Maps looking for little roads that might... Uh, lead off next to a, a corner where I could perhaps go and shoot but once you've got there there's no guarantee that you're actually going to be able to shoot from there so it, it is a challenging place and uh, presumably you're stuck there for a uh, uh, or, or for at least the coming session uh, yeah um, it was always better I always try and go to somewhere where you can at least get away uh, so I didn't have those problems but getting getting around from one point to the next is difficult the the streets are really busy so it's probably one of the most challenging races from a photography perspective that i that i've done so far yeah it, interesting pretty pictures or not so pretty pictures uh yeah very well obviously 
seeing a motorcycle in the middle of a street with armco around it and chinese lettering and things like that everywhere makes it, it makes it interesting more interesting than your average moto gp race but uh, <laughs> uh but an awful lot more challenging obviously than uh, than your average moto gp race the, the circuit length is not hugely different from a uh, say the some of the longer circuits but yeah. getting around it as i said is very very difficult the, there is a shuttle bus but trying to rely on the shuttle bus it was a bit unreliable so i used my feet and that was pretty pretty hard work because it was very hot and i was carrying 15 kilos of camera equipment on my back wherever i went so that was fun maybe lost a pound or two whilst i was there <laughs> as for the race itself tony um was there was it a big surprise that peter hickman won the race considering the likes of Stuart easton and ian hutchinson were there um not a huge surprise because obviously we've seen how well Peter Hickman has adapted to road racing with his performances at the TT and he and he won a race at this year's Ulster Grand Prix as well. Um, so no, not to me it wasn't. I think that the surprise was to see how far off the likes of Hutchie were in. I think he finished if I'm if I'm remember, remember put my teeth back in remembering rightly in sixth place. So um, I did expect to see Michael Rutter. Uh, be pushing at the front but apparently his traction control stopped working on the start line so he had to spend sort of four or five laps relearning how to ride the bike without traction control <laughs> it's a tough track to learn to be uh, to be learning how to ride a bike around without traction control it, absolutely so not the kind of place you could afford to make too many mistakes the no no the it's uh it's wall-to-wall armco all the way around and uh there's not too many circuits that are, uh, on a motorcycle in particular that was as dangerous as this one yeah, yeah exactly uh, have you been kneeled to macau or is it, is it on your bucket list it's on my bucket list for sure no i've 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 uh, i've never been out um out there to see the race um although it's something after looking at tony's photos from this year um you were showing me some of them in in Hareth. um yeah it's definitely somewhere i'd like to go before because it's been you know i kind of grew up going to road racing circuits around ireland northern ireland and the isle of man um, and yeah, it's been too long actually since I've been to one. So I feel that um, maybe next year or the year after, I'll have to try and get to Mackay. Yeah, you'll have to sell a, sell a story to a publisher. <laughs> exactly, but, or and a kidney. Uh, <laughs> or a kidney, yeah. <laughs> now, now is a good time to capitalise on that because um, road racing is definitely on the, the up. And uh, speaking to a, a photographer friend of mine who I think this year he said was the first year for as long as he could remember that he didn't have to go hunting for work for Macau people were coming to him the the interest in road racing is really high on uh, everybody else is benefiting through the success of the TT over the last uh, 10 years yeah that that's int- it's a shame really that the uh, that whole TT world um uh, world series thing i forget i forget exactly what it was called but it's basically the group of uh, the group of road races that it that it couldn't really take off but um it's. Uh, I can imagine that it's a very difficult uh, series mm. to get sorted out and to get to, to get a, a a uniform set of rules and and standards. Really. Yeah, I, I think there's two schools of thoughts on the on that, um, and I probably fall into the one where I I would be concerned that it would detract from the TT itself. As TT is very much uh, an event of its own. There's there's whilst there is road racing, there's nothing really else like the TT in the world. So. Mm. Yeah, uh, trying to replicate that and then having that season finish, and it would and it would have potentially been bad news for the 
the Northwest 200 and the Ulster Grand Prix as well, which are both fantastic events that you wouldn't want to see uh, fall fall to the wayside because of uh, a series that would push them out, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You've got to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, exactly. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, um, Hareth. Uh, for myself and Neil were out in Hareth for for a couple of days. Neil was out there till Friday, and uh, Neil obviously got a good opportunity to to get to speak to some of the guys. And uh, what was the general consensus from them, Neil? Um, yeah, it was an interesting three days. Uh, we were there from Wednesday uh, until Friday, um, and it was a continuation really of um, of the riders' adaptation to um, to the new machines, um, also to the 2016 Magneti Morelli electronics and to the new Michelin tires. Um, you know, three things that are going to take a lot of getting used to. Um, and in any year, just one of those things would be, you know, quite a big change to, to adapt to. So, um, so basically, yeah, basically the more miles these riders can get under the belts before, uh, Qatar, uh, next year, uh, the better. So it was, it was interesting to see that, um, from what we could, uh, what we heard, it seems that um, Ducati certainly has a bit of a head start on Honda and Aprilia, who were also testing um, at Hareth. And um, yeah, and you would have to say at the moment that advantage seems to be quite big going into the, the two-month um, winter break. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed to me that the uh, just looking at the times and, and listening to, to what all the riders had to say, uh, it seems that the, um, I mean, the, the Michelin's are sort of a known quantity. People know, well, they they're starting to understand them. It's still difficult, you know. There was still how many how many front end crashes were there? I think just about everyone crashed. Yeah, there was uh, there was quite a number. There were two very um, very scary falls for Michele Pirro and Eugene Laverty on Thursday. Yeah, and Laverty um, Laverty fractured his wrist, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and dislocated his shoulder and also took a bit of a bump to the head. Um, so yeah, that was not not the end of uh, not the end of the year that he wanted for sure. Um, and then there were also some you know several other um, front end falls on the Friday, uh, mostly at the mostly at the final corner actually. Um, and a couple of those were riders just saying that they were they were testing the limits. They understood kind of why they were they were crashing. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting to hear. Some riders certainly said that they they started to, they were starting to understand the the feeling the behaviour of the front tire, and others were not so confident. Yeah, do you think that's a, uh, a factor of bike setup, or was it a particular bike that was handling the front better than others, or was it just did it much more of a difference per rider? Um, I think it was, it was a difference really per rider. I would say because um, looking at the Ducatis, the, the the two riders that notably seem to be getting on a lot better with the Michelins were Ian Oney and Scott Redding. Um, Davizioso, on the other hand, was still you know you could see he was still trying to process and get a grip, get a feel for the you know the the predictability of the behaviour of the front tire. Um, and then looking at um, looking at Honda, um, Danny Pedrosa basically you know, didn't, his priorities were totally focused on the electronics and Honda's new engine that he didn't really have time to fully assess any kind of front tires and give any sort of like meaningful feedback, you know, because that wasn't his focus. Marquez, on the other hand, you know, still couldn't, um, couldn't pitch his bike into the fast corners with, with true confidence, you know. Um, and it was, it was quite interesting actually that obviously being there for three days, give you an opportunity to go out around the track to have a little watch at different places and they were the MotoGP guys were were obviously t testing at the same time as several world superbike teams 
Um, and when we were watching up at the Cedar Ponds curve, you know, the, the fast right-hander that leads onto the back straight, you could notably see that the, the World Superbike guys were just throwing their bikes into that corner. Um, and the MotoGP guys were just taking it a little bit more serenely. I say serenely, you know, they were still <laughs> yeah, obviously Yeah, that's right, for, for a motorcycle racer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so you could definitely see that the guys were still, you know, they're still trying to process things in their head, um, you know, and for, for a lot of them, you know, they've spent five, six years, seven years, maybe even longer in Bridgestone's tyres, and the, just the characteristics are so different that it's bound to take um, quite, a, quite a, a length of time to, to adapt. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of look at it and you see that they have, uh, what is it, nine days... Um, uh, well, basically in total 12 days before the first race at Qatar, uh, uh, plus obviously Honda, Ducati, Aprilia have chosen to do three days testing at, um, uh, at Jerez. That's not much time to make such an incredibly uh, major um, change in sort of approach, really. Uh, it's interesting that you said that you could really see them, uh, see the MotoGP riders being sort of ginger into corners because that's exactly what you'd expect them to to do, not have the faith that the front tyre is going to bail them out the way that the, the front Bridgestone used to bail them out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, and it's in those fast corners as well where you kind of get the impression that it has the most... Um, you know the, the biggest difference. Um, I think you know with speaking to Nicky Hayden um, on one of the days, and he was talking about just the difference between uh, the Pirelli tires and the Bridgestone's all MotoGP tires, and he was saying like you know even with with the Bridgestones you could basically be getting your knee down, almost touching the the ground with your elbow while still holding the front brake. You know such was the, yeah such was the power of the grip, um, and, and Michelin just is a completely different character of tire. Um, you know it requires that kind of straight line straight line braking um, and doesn't quite give you the same feeling when you're pitching into the fast third, fourth gear corners. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly see that uh, because I also found it really interesting that it was uh, particularly Andrea De Luzioso who has been struggling with the Michelins because his biggest problem all year really has been the fact that the GP15 has lacked a little bit of uh, of stability on the braking and, and De Luzioso is obviously one of the riders who is strongest Actually, on the brakes, um, he really relies on um, uh, on the front brake, and he's also, uh, I think, uh, Brembo released some of those uh, uh, from at, at some races. They uh, release a little list of who's the latest of the latest breakers, and uh, uh, Dovizioso always features quite uh, quite high up on those lists. So, yeah, um, that, again, that's also because he's carrying the uh, uh, carrying some brake into the corner. Uh, and and the Michelin is really not uh, not wanting to let them do that yet. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the other thing that uh, I found most interesting was the amount of work they've been spending on electronics. It really looks like the Ducati uh, are quickly up to speed. I think was it uh, um, who was it told you that it was. That they were at fifty percent, Neil. Was it? Was it you? It was. Yeah, it was uh, Daniele Romagnoli, uh, Daniel, Daniel Petrucci's crew chief. Um, I was speaking to him on Friday morning, um, and I kind of I put him, uh, I put it to him that uh, Corrado Cecchinelli um, in Valencia had said that the, the electronics were around ten percent of their their full potential um, in, in that first Valencia test, um, and he said he felt it was more like fifty percent, um, which is quite you know it seems like a quite a big advancement. Um, from what they were perhaps predicting before this, before this, 
Yeah, exactly. And it does seem also that the uh, that Ducati have a bit of an advantage uh, here. Obviously, if I remember correctly, um, uh, Ducati had some input into the open class software at 2000, in 2004, uh, 2014, I believe. Um, but the teams uh, ended up rejecting that uh, set of software because it was too complex. Um, and so they went back to the old uh, software. So I don't know how much of that um, that old framework, or the, the framework which was rejected, which originally came from Ducati, actually went into the 2016 electronics. But you've got to think that um, Ducati's electronics are, ba are still based around the same sort of concept uh, that the that the unified software uh, is is going to be so they probably have less to learn and also this is completely hypothesis on my part but i sort of suspect that um uh the the software used to actually manage the ecu uh sort of the user interface to you uh, to it, if you like i suspect that that looks a lot like the, like ducati's original um, uh, original user interface and so they probably just have uh, a lot less work trying to figure out where to do uh, well yeah where to input all the little magic numbers to make the bike go faster um, rather than the Honda techs and Honda engineers are still trying to figure out you know where all of the various um, what all the screens are and where they're supposed to be putting what numbers in and uh, you know what happens if you press this button uh, and that sort of thing a lot of that you could do on the dyno but even then it's still um, uh, it, it it's like going from uh, a Mac to a Word to, to Windows, really. You know, it's 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 very very different, and you find yourself sort of scratching around trying to trying to find uh, all the thing, trying to find how to do the basic things you thought that you understood how how to how to do it, really. Yeah, exactly. I think at the end of the at the end of the rest test, um, I asked Danny Petrosa what level he felt uh, his his electronics were working at, which you know what percentage of potential, and he said it was still far too early. Him and his engineers um, just were none the wiser. Really, they were still very much in the dark, and they were still after three days uh, of testing in Jerez and two in Valencia, they were still unable to give a well. He was still unable to give a, a clear, full assessment on Honda's new engine. Well, yeah, they, they, because they do have, uh, well, they have two problems, really. One of them is that they've got to, to, to get a handle on the electronics. And um, they've got, they've been trying out this new engine, which is, I think, more, which has more bottom end, uh, while retaining the same sort of top end, uh, as far as I can tell. But um, yeah, they, I think a little. I think a little less top end, um, right? But they they were saying more power down below. Um, but they basically they they don't know how to deliver the, the torque yet. That's what Marquez was saying on Thursday. Well, yeah, exactly. The 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 problem is is the the engine itself doesn't appear to be inherently sort of you know user friendly. The way that uh, you always get the impression that uh, if you took all the electronics off of the off the Yamaha engine, uh, you could ride it. Um, it would still actually go quite fast, whereas if you took all the electronics off the off the Honda engine, it would be completely unrideable. Um, so, I it, just the nature of the engine is that much more aggressive and that much more, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, aggressive is the it's the best description. It's just just a very very vicious engine, and it, it, it's hard to control. Uh, yeah. And now they've got. Uh, 
well, reactive software rather than the, the, than the active software they used to have, which used to anticipate um, uh, exactly how much uh, or, or how grip was changing and, and, and all these sort of factors. Um, uh, and, and yeah, they're, they're stuck with much more primitive, um, much more primitive electronics, which they've got to try and figure out and, and an aggressive engine. So, it, so far, I, it, it doesn't look like Honda are in a particularly good place at the moment. Yeah. A, a question for you, David. The yeah. the electronics that are being used next year, uh, yeah. how similar are they to the open class electronics that were being used uh, for this season? They are a lot better than the open class uh, software that was used last year. They use a, they use a different system. Uh, the last year they were using what's called um, uh, Alpha N, which is uh, basically putting it very simply because I don't really understand it myself. Um, it's uh, they measure throttle position, uh, so you know how much throttle, or actually I think how how far open the throttle um, the throttle butterflies are, and how many revs the uh, the engine are, are going, and they try to manage the engine through that. But the trouble is that doesn't account for engine load particularly well, and it's also not very good in different gears, and and actually making a. a uh, a, a good engine mapping is is not very is not very good. It's now a torque based system, and basically what that means is you make a torque map of the engine, and a torque map is basically how the engine is going to uh, react to different throttle settings, um, uh, in different gears, in different uh, engine loads, and all the rest of it, so that you have a, a basic understanding. And so. Uh, when you open the throttle, it's it's a much more direct feeling for the rider. It's a much more uh, direct feeling, uh, uh, direct connection from the throttle to the uh, to the engine. So you you know you're opening the throttle to expect to get a certain amount of drive out of a particular out of a particular corner, and that's what this torque mapping is going to do. It's, it's basically the same system which most um, traction control systems have been using for at, at least at least the last 10 years or so. Um, the, the old open class system was much, much more um, old-fashioned and... and, uh, and Shit. But <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was indeed the, uh, uh, that was indeed the noun uh, most used to, or adjective most used to describe it, yes. Uh, yes, I would say. <laughs> that was certainly what I heard on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but again, what, what's really interesting is that uh, I think a few of the, uh, a few of the Ducati guys at, um, uh, at the Jerez test said that, um, They'd used. They were benefit, benefiting from all the work that they'd done with the Avintia team last year. That Ducati had done with the Avintia team last year um, to actually sort of understand the electronics and get them sorted out a little bit. Because uh, again, the uh, you never really heard uh, Hector Barbera complaining or uh, complaining about the uh, about the Ducati uh, about the Ducati's electronics. You never re also you never really heard. Well, you heard a bit of complaining about the uh, about the electronics at forward, um, uh, but it was particularly the Hondas which reacted badly to the um, mm. uh, uh, to the open electronics, and so uh, I, I I think that's partly because the again the aggressiveness of the engine, but uh, and the fact that it's the, the electronic strategies and the and, and sort of the philosophy behind it is so totally different to Honda's own uh, own philosophy. 
um, it just makes it a lot more difficult to actually to actually cope with. So, plus Ducati were you know they were helping uh, Avintia you know with uh, with the open Hondas. Yeah. There was absolutely no input whatsoever from the factory uh, through. No, the year. I think I think the only person who got any help um, on an open Honda was uh, was Jack Miller. Um, yeah. and, uh, and and that was it. And even then, I don't think it was a massive amount of uh, uh, you know a massive amount of help. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, and, and and I think you know um, you look at um, a lot of the Ducati guys have been quite satisfied. Their feedback's been mostly positive, um, and even if you look at the Jerez test, I mean they had all of their all of their bikes, their 2016 teams and riders there. Uh, you know Honda had two test riders and their their Repsol guys. Um, yeah, you know and on on Wednesday. Um, okay, the, the factory Ducati guys weren't out in track, but they had Piero out doing laps all day. Yeah, uh, they set Hernandez and Laverty out to kind of dial the the settings in, and all that in- information was being, you know, they were accumulating it the whole time and then sharing it on. And on Friday, um, you know, Davizioso uh, pointed out that you know it was it was because of the good work that Avintia had done, the good work that the Aspar riders had done, and, and of course Piero as well, and then Pramac on Thursday onwards. Um, that that was one of the reasons why. The, the electronics were a bit more dialed in, you know, because they were accumulating that information and then um, sharing it through, around with each other. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really interesting and that's much more of a cooperative effort. I mean, I, I think uh, Ducati's philosophy was always a little bit that way, um, but especially since Delinia has arrived, it's much more that way. There's much more information sharing. Uh, it's much more of a it's much more of a family as well. But then again, this has been a strategy, I think, also that uh, Ducati had been following um oh, for, for for a long time because i remember maybe 2008 2009 uh, talk about the pramac ducatis and the fact that the pramac ducati was going to become this uh, ducati junior team um so there it was much more about keeping uh keeping pramac inside the ducati family um and now i think it, even though they're supplying eight bikes um it's still you know the Ducati family and everyone is uh, everyone is a part of it and everyone is uh, actually benefits from from all of the lessons learned because they they have to work together if they're going to compete against the sheer volumes of money which uh, which uh, Honda and to a lesser extent Yamaha can actually throw at the problem. Yeah, exactly, and there seems to be a concerted effort from, uh, you know, the the, the top guys at, at Ducati to to be going into the Avintia garage and the Aspar garage just to check and, and make sure what's you know they, they kind of have an eye of what's going on, um, listening to the feedback and kind of understanding it and and basically then using it and applying it to something else and you know that's only going to help riders like Loris Baz and Eugene Laverty next year you know yeah. if they if they see Gigi Dolina coming into their garage um, you know showing an active interest in how they're getting on how they're developing um, you know it's it's good for rider morale and it's good for the the kind of the whole Ducati effort yeah exactly and rider morale is worth a tenth of a, a, at least a tenth of a second a lap anyway yeah at least yeah so uh, yeah it, it, it's it really is it really is good for uh, for everyone yeah um, uh, we've, we've we've been focusing quite a lot on uh, Honda and Ducati uh, at the Hereth test but we should remember that um, we had Aprilia there as well as well as some of the um, leading world superbike teams uh, Neil did you get much of an opportunity to speak to uh, the guys at Aprilia or, or other world superbike riders that were there yeah, I, I got this, the chance to speak to Alvaro Bautista on Thursday. Uh, he left the track early on Friday because he crashed at the last corner. And I think he just tweaked his neck. Nothing serious, but um, decided to basically call it a day early on. 
Um, and yeah, it seemed like Aprilia were maybe not the best placed. Um, they tested the 2016 electronics and the Michelin tires in Valencia. Um, I think they lost their way a little bit and they decided basically to, to just test the, the 2015 electronics. So they reverted back to the, the electronics they were using, uh, during the season, mm. um, just to get an understanding of the, the Michelin tires. Um, and yeah, it seemed to me like there were, they still were kind of trying to adapt to that, you know, trying to get their heads around that. Um, they, Alvaro Bautista hasn't, has yet to see the, the 2016 bike. I think it, he said it's still kind of in the computer. It's still very much in the process of, of being put together. Um, so yeah, f- from what I could tell, uh, I think Bradle then went back out on the 2016 electronics on Friday. Um, but it seems that the, they have a bit of work to do there. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, Aprilia are in a very similar situation to Honda in that uh, Aprilia ha- have always had their own uh, electronics. Uh, they've developed their own software. They've de- they developed their own uh, control software. And they are struggling just to get to grips with the way that Magneti Morelli have, b- have built the unified software. Uh, uh, one of the things that, that, that the Aprilia riders were saying, and I think the Honda's riders were saying the same, to make a change just takes such a long time uh, that you f- you know you can find yourself sort of sitting in a garage for a very long time just while the engineers figure out uh, the change that they need to make and then how to make that change uh, and get the bike ready to go out again with the with, with an update. So it, it's just a very very time consuming uh, a, a very time consuming process. Yeah, and, you, and and one which you imagine must be quite frustrating as a rider as well. Um, I think on the final day, Pedroza said that really he lost his way. They were just trying to test too many different things at the same time because they weren't getting a um, a meaningful answer um, from what they were testing, and it was just proven to you know it was all just a bit of a blur. You know, he wasn't really able to differentiate anything that uh, that he was testing on that day. So. Um, yeah, yeah. So it must be it must be quite uh, quite a big shock to the system. Yeah, I, mean, I think also uh, you have to wonder how much of a role Aprilia's new bike is playing on their sort of planning, because obviously they're getting a new bike in. Um, uh, well, it's supposed to get its or make its debut at. Uh, at the Sepang test, uh, I think earlier this year we were told that the bike will get its sort of first rollout in January somewhere at a uh, well uh, uh, somewhere which wasn't going to be a racetrack, but uh, uh, the Aprilia guys wouldn't tell us where it was because obviously those rollouts are, are the sort of things that you want to do behind closed doors because what you're doing is, is checking it doesn't blow itself up um, or embarrass you or embarrass you in another way. Um, and yeah, so you have to wonder whether they are sort of you know gathering data and not wondering about it because it'll, this bike will have a new engine, a new chassis, basically a new everything. It's going to be it's going to be I think it'll be similar to the RSV4 or, or the uh, RSGP as it's called, but it's still going to be uh, a much much bigger step. And so you've got to wonder how much uh, use. The electronics, uh, well, the data gathered with the RSGP will will actually make for when they go racing with a new bike. Yeah, exactly. And I think the main priority for that new bike is is more speed and and less weight. Um, the Bautista kind of uh, said that uh, the bike was too heavy. Yeah. Um, and and you know they frequently um, complained of it being too slow throughout the year. Uh, was it was it you that spoke to Johnny Ray about it? It was Johnny Ray saying he was basically getting stuck behind the Aprilia in the corners. 
No, it wasn't me. No, no. Uh, uh, right. Because uh, someone mentioned it to me, and I can't remember who it was, but uh, basically jo- Johnny Ray said that he was uh, he was following the Aprilia around, and uh, the Aprilia was plenty fast on the straights, but um, uh, he was just basically getting stuck stuck behind it in the corners. The, the, the Kawasaki Superbike was just that much faster through there, and, it, and he was getting actually actively getting hailed up. So the, it, it's um, again they've complained of understeer all year because the bike is so heavy. Uh, so this could also be be a bit of a problem. Talk, talking yeah, about sure. the um, the Kawasaki superbike, that it looks as though uh, Kawasaki have come out with uh, a great package for for their riders for next year. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they've got a, a new model of the the ZX10R, um, and they I think they had a very positive test in Aragon before they they came to Jerez. Um, at the end of that test, Ray said that if they had the race. Tomorrow they could, um, which kind of showed just uh, how good shape they were in. Um, and yeah, I mean the, the times they were they were doing on the final day, um, I think were faster than GP guys at one point, um, albeit on qualifying rubber. But still, the pace and consistency of those guys there um, was very ominous indeed. Both Sykes and Ray looking very very I, strong. I think, I think what was most impressive was them on the on the first day they were there. James Ellison was lapping uh, a, a second and a half. Back from them on basically a, the standard road bike with uh, bodywork put on it. Yeah, exactly. That's it, it. Means the base package is not so bad. Yes, I would say so. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And you know, like they're, they're they're doing the the very smart thing. You know, they've had a wonderfully successful season with Jonathan Ray. Um, but I'm sure you know it's it's vital at this kind of a, of a, um, this stage of a season uh, for a rider that's just like won a world championship to come testing with lots of new parts uh, you know with lots of new things lots of fresh ideas to kind of motivate the rider not that Jonathan Ray needed to motivate him but you know to kind of <laughs> to keep his uh, you know just to, to show that they're not resting on, on their laurels at all and they had a whole raft of things to test uh, throughout the two days I think they were testing electronics um, some some chassis changes suspension Jonathan Ray even asked um, I think they were running Brembo Bakes this year uh, but Johnny used Nissan back when he was uh, when he was racing with the 10 Caddy Honda Swad he kind of said he sort of preferred the feeling with the Nissan brakes so they were kind of evaluating um, back to back these different brakes and things like that and you know the whole way through there seemed to be very good pace I think both riders had uh, Jonathan crashed on the Friday Tom had a bit of a I think he had two spills on Tuesday um, but both riders seemed very very confident with um, with their overall package both on over you know a single lap pace and um, and in terms of race pace too. I mean, you you really hope that um, they find a way to slow the Kawasaki's down because if you take the two Kawasaki's out of the equation, it's looking like a really interesting and, and potentially very exciting World Superbike series. Uh, I mean, Nicky Hayden made his debut on the on the Honda and. Uh, to be, and was you know quite impressively quick. The Althea BMWs were quick. Uh, the Yamahas tur- the, the Yamaha turned up, uh, but they turned up obviously without any ofi- official timing, which was a little bit uh, uh, a little bit of a shame. But as far as I could tell, or from the, the rumours I heard, they were still uh, really quite competitive already, even though they've only just rolled that bike out. So I yeah, they- there were a lot of big smiles in that garage as well from the two riders. So you could read into that what you will. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, Tony, you were out taking pictures. Was there anything that, that you noticed about the riding styles of the either the World Superbike guys or the World, or the MotoGP guys? Was there anything that you really noticed? One thing that stood out to me with the World Superbikes was the amount of um, traction control and electronics that you could hear being used. 
with the with the way that they were riding the bike compared to perhaps the way the MotoGP riders were riding it. Whether that's just because the the MotoGP bikes at the moment are struggling with the electronics and perhaps not using a great deal of it, I don't know. It's, it's certainly something that um, that a friend a friend and colleague of ours picked up on, and uh, they certainly seem to be really hammering the the electronics and traction control. Yeah, yeah. You sort of wonder also if that's the difference between a um, a, a Pirelli. Well, I mean, it is a Pirelli racing slick, but um, uh, it, it, you know the, the the Pirellis are not quite at the same level as the motor, as the uh, as the Michelin tyres or uh, as the Bridgestone tyres, but especially the Michelin rears. I can imagine that you that the Michelin rears have, have got so much grip that the, there is not that much call to actually. Uh, Cut the electronics because it's you know it, it, you can use the drive coming out of there to actually get off the corner. But uh, uh, and you said I mean you saw the you saw the Yamahas the Yamahas looked uh, looks good in and out of corners. Uh, yeah, it, it was difficult to to get a proper reaction. I think um, the bits of information that uh, that I gleaned from uh, the guys that were there, um, not directly, but. Um, they were not testing a great deal on electronics. They were just getting a general feel for the for the package that they had. And despite having not done a great deal with electronics, they felt that they were there or thereabouts and um, felt like they, they were going to be really strong uh, come next year. Yeah, yeah. I think I think um, uh, they, they weren't testing the the, the 2016 engine. Um, that that is yet to come. I think that's going to be brought out in January um, to test before they they shoot off to to Phillip Island for the season opener. Um, I think Intoli was running a completely stock uh, swing arm. Uh, throughout the three days um, you know so there's still parts of that bike which um, you know have not really been developed but they were saying that the base of it is so strong that they don't really you know the, the swing arm for example you know works works can totally couldn't speak highly enough of it yeah. you know and it's completely stock um, you know the engine still you know it's going to it's going to be a new engine for them to come in um, and what really I think what really pleased the Yamaha guys was that they didn't have to make big changes coming from Aragon to Jerez. The base of the, the bike is already at a really good level. Um, and that, that's just making their job so much easier because they're then able to start focusing on little like fine tunings, the electronics, uh, sh- uh, chassis and suspension and things like that. Yeah, it's going to be, it, it, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how, uh, how that goes. Because I mean, uh, the Yamaha are coming in with a strong bike. The, obviously the Kawasaki is going to be, uh, it's going to be good. It's a shame that we lost Suzuki from world Superbikes, Uh, but I think they're coming out with a new world suit with a new Superbike uh, for 2017. Uh, BMW seems to be making a more of a, more of a concerted effort. Cause I understand there's going to be a second um, uh, alongside Althea. There could be a second uh, uh, world Superbike team uh, uh, joining joining them on bmws um yeah i mean it's it's quite yeah it's quite interesting did you get speaking to nikki at all nikki hayden uh, i mean a lot of uh, americans that i speak to are absolutely thrilled by the fact that uh you know hayden is going to be in world superbikes next year and there's been a, a massive uptick in interest uh uh, because he's there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I spoke to him on Thursday night, and yeah, the initial, um, the initial feelings were fairly positive. Um, he said, you know, it took him a couple of exits uh, to really get acclimatized to the feel of the superbike, to the tires, to everything. Um, you know, he said the the straights were certainly a lot longer around the rest um, now that he's on, you know, the CBR. 
Um, but yeah, he was, he was, you know, his initial feedback was pretty good. Um, he said, you know, the electronics were a lot better, um, to what he was riding, you know, in the last two years. Although I don't think that would have been too hard. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he was happy with that. And he, you know, he said, um, you know, the, the Pirelli front tire is obviously going to take a lot to get used to. The consistency isn't there, um, that there was with the Bridgestone tires that he, that he, you know, was racing on for quite some time. Um, and he, you know, he's still trying to get his head around the fact that you just can't change the gearbox in superbikes. That's something that, um, <laughs> that's something that he's been used to for what, 13 years, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he seemed to be happy. I mean, on, on his, um, on the first day there on Wednesday, he was fast and he was even fast. I think he was under the, the world superbike pole time from 2015, um, on the final day. Um, and really the only thing that I think was, that prevented him from being more positive was the speed of the Kawasaki's just because they yeah. seem to be on a, operating on another level at the moment. Yeah, even compared to the Ducatis because the Ducatis were there as well and, um, uh, you know, Chas Davis, uh, Chavi Forrest, who is, I think is going to be quite an interesting addition to the... Yeah, that's that's uh, a good sign-in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definite, uh, definitely. Um, uh, even the Ducatis weren't... weren't I mean, the Hondas were around the pace of the Ducatis, which was which was sort of interesting. But you, you're not really. I mean, what were the Ducatis testing? Um, the Ducatis were kind of testing just a different setup, um, calibration, um, tires, different things like that. Um, Chaz was really happy. Uh, I think on Thursday um, they tried a few things on Friday, which didn't quite work. Um, in his favor, so he was a little, just a tiny little bit deflated on Friday evening. Um, but um, but no, I think over overall, um, you know, considering the the momentum that the Davies in particular built up before the end of the year, um, you know, and a couple of good tests under his belt now, I think they should be, um, you know, they should be a force next year for sure. Yeah. Also, um, uh, actually, in World Supersport, because uh, Kanan Sofwoglu, I think he was going, he was circulating before you were there. I think they left after the Tuesday. That's right. Uh, but they were going around fast, and PJ Jacobson was there as well. Uh, the um, it, it, it's quite funny. I mean, I really like PJ. So he's, re- he's a really nice bloke, and he's also really, really fast. Um, but he gets sort of. It, for, People forget that there's this world class American in world super sports, <laughs> um, and he was circulating at a, a pretty decent pace as well. But it's obviously a lot more difficult when there's just one world super bike or one or one world super sport bike uh, and nothing really to measure it against. Yeah, exactly. I think he broke the he went under the world super sport lap record in the final day. Um, I was pretty happy with how things were going, and then also uh, Michael van der Mark was complaining of um, of arm pain. Yeah. Um, on Wednesday, so he left the test early, as did Alex Lowe's. Alex Lowe's dislocated uh, his shoulder in a fast fall at the end of uh, at the end of Wednesday. He crashed at turn three. Um, so so basically, Jacobson was given van der Mark's bike on the final afternoon and was was doing some pretty impressive times actually um his first time on a superbike in several years i think since he was you know since his british superbike days yeah 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 exactly exactly yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah definitely uh you know it, it should be a grip battle this year you know um Cluzel, obviously when he gets fit again um you know the the, the battle between him and sofogli was intriguing up until Cluzel broke his leg yeah and you you, you have to imagine that jacobson's going to be a lot faster uh than he was last year and he's going to have that consistency you know he changed from kamasaki to honda yeah. this year he's going to have you know he's in a good team i think that's pretty much the it's under the the core thailand you know that's the the, the banner of the team but i think it's pretty much the, the 10 caddy team um with 10 caddy machinery and you have to imagine the pj is going to be very quick 
Yeah, exactly. If it can be as consistent uh, sort of from the start, then then it could be a really it could be a really good battle. Uh, it was also really good to see Davide Giuliano back on uh, back on track again after a really long layoff with those uh, with those sort of spinal injuries. Uh, uh, well, basically halfway through the year, I think. I think because he hurt himself before the year, and then was it at um, Lugana? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. He first injured himself uh, testing in, in Phillip Island, had a long layoff. I think he missed the first four rounds, and then he came back and then had a massive crash in Laguna. And I was speaking to someone at Chicati, and they were saying that the crash in Laguna was very, very close to you know being a career ender. Yeah, um, he was extremely fortunate. Um, and we, I think we saw him at um, there was a press event in Mizano. I don't yes. know if you remember, yeah, and he was yeah. wearing the huge big neck brace. You yeah. know, it looked like you know that was a very serious prang. Um, so several people in Chicati were saying that they're hoping, you know, Giuliano's one of those guys that you know has so much talent. You know, he is just naturally fast, but you know his application. Sometimes he just needs to be a bit more calm, a bit more measured in his approach. And one or two people at Chicati were saying that they are hopeful that this might, you know, this might force him to take a more measured yeah, approach to, 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 to his racing. To step it back from 101% to sort of 99.9%, which is the difference between actually, uh, you know, winning races regularly, regularly and or, or seeing a lot of the inside of the clinic immobile. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. exactly. Yeah. I exactly. I, I suppose we should um, think about moving on uh, to uh, a review of the season. But before we do, we should also mention that um, KTM were out on track testing there the uh, MotoGP project for coming into the championship in 2017 have any of you have either of you been able to glean any information on uh, how that testing went uh, uh, no i mean apart from the press release that they uh, that they handed out there was the um uh, actually the, the 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 guy who runs the german speed week mag- uh, um website came up to me at valencia and said oh you got to re- you make sure you read the interview i did with stefan pierre who's the boss of ktm and uh, the, he you know let drop a few interesting details uh, claiming that the bike made 270 horsepower which is uh, shall we say very healthy indeed how does that uh, how does that compare to something like the ducati do you know it is probably about the same as uh, as the Honda, and uh, not far off what the Ducati is producing. Uh, whether 270 horsepower is, I mean, where they measure that, if they, uh, because by the time sort of horsepower gets to the rear wheel, then there's quite often. Uh, all of a sudden, a lot less left than than the than the uh, the figures in the brochure. Uh, so, whether it's really two hundred and seventy horsepower, we don't know. But I mean, it doesn't seem like it's got any real horsepower problems. Uh, today, what is it? Tuesday today. Uh, today, I saw uh, KTM have published an interview with um, Mika Calio, and Calio was saying, you know, there's no problems with horsepower with this thing. Hmm. So that's not going to be that's not going to be an issue. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, because there was nobody there, um, it was a private test. Um, they obviously, not, it's way too early to be releasing uh, uh, lap times for uh, for a project Absolutely. because this was this was this was the first official test, rather than. Um, uh, rather than after the rollout which they had at the Red Bull Ring in in Austria. It was yeah. it was interesting to see that they've gone with a with a trellis design frame as opposed to. Um... Well, yeah, this is it. I mean, uh, I heard from one uh, uh, journalist in 
were in MotoGP that one of the reasons that the, the, the Ducati didn't like their trellis frame was because it was impossible to get two two frames the same stiffness because you've got so many complex welds um, and welds are never are, they're much more difficult to get a uh, of a uniform strength and so you've got all of these complex connections and it's really difficult to create the same feel or to replicate the same feel uh, just through the production process, the actual way it's built. Um, I asked, well, several years ago, um, uh, I think it was uh, not Pira, but uh, Pitt Byer, the um, uh, the boss of their Moto3 project, uh, about that. And he said it's it, it's never been a problem for them, for them with their Moto3 bike. But then again, a Moto3 bike is only, you know, it weighs, it weighs about a pixie fart and produces... Uh, <laughs> Produces a, a, about six horsepower, so it's S- not really significantly g- less than two hundred and seventy horsepower. Yeah, sig- significantly less. <laughs> I think uh, pixie, a pixie fight is that the same? It's the same as you weigh, David. <laughs> well, no, I, uh, I, that's I a bag weigh, bag full of pixie farts. I think exactly. <laughs> Quite possibly a very large sack full of pixie farts. <laughs> so, but, so uh, we, we can't really give out any inf- great deal of information about KTM because we don't have any. But uh, no, exactly. It's just except great. that it's nice it, to see it, yeah, I mean, they have to be fast. The idea is that uh, uh, they'll be racing in 2016 or 2017 with a wild card at Valencia. Um, they're going to need to hire a fast rider, and the only way that they can be sure to hire a fast rider is to be fast. Um, I mean, you know, uh, just mentioning just completely random names. I have no idea whether they'll go or not. Um, uh, you know, Danny Pedrosa, Alicia Spargaro, Bradley Smith, uh, all of these kind of people. Um, they will go. They will only go if that bike can be competitive. They're not going to go if the test times have been sort of you know two two and a half seconds off the front guys. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it's going to have to be. It's going to have to be fast. Absolutely. Uh, and I think also they're going to have to. They they, they are going to have to. Um, uh, Test publicly with the with the rest of the MotoGP boys, just so they can actually show the bike to their uh, to their potential riders and their potential customers. Yes, but uh, I, I do think that the choice of um, Mika Calio as a test rider is a is a really good one. I spoke to someone from Mark VDS team, and uh, he he said, "Yeah, no, it's, it's a great choice. Um, uh, Calio as a, as a development rider, as a test rider, is a great choice because his his input was always excellent. His problem was always that he wanted to spend too much time fiddling around with the bike instead of getting on and just racing it. You know, just racing it. Uh, and so he's great at providing feedback. He's great at um, uh, figuring out." Where uh, and and you know identifying where the problems of a bike are. So yeah, it, that's that's going to be really interesting. And there were there were whispers at Valencia that they're going to be wildcarding at the at the end of 2016 at Valencia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, okay, which should be interesting. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Although by then, of course, we should know who's supposed to be riding there, uh, who's supposed to be riding the motor, uh, motor GP bike. Of course, I mean, there's still rumours that it might be uh, Johan Zarco because of the uh, uh, the tie-in with uh, IO, the IO team, uh, which would certainly be very, very interesting. But uh, uh, frankly, I can't wait. I really want to see that bloody motorbike. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. it looks fantastic. It does look, it does look fantastic from the pictures I've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
We, we've talked at great length about the, the winter testing. We've not really left ourselves any time to have a review of the season. So for, for this episode, we'll thank you for listening to the Paddock Pass podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you listen to it through iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps other MotoGP fans find the show. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook at Facebook slash Paddock Pass podcast and Twitter at Paddock Pass pod. Thanks again and see you next time. Excellent. You're really what a good pro. at that. Yeah, what fucking a, right. What a pro. Jesus, it takes me yeah. fucking 17 takes to do that. Those fucking Even said dot- paddock pass pallet. See? 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 Yeah. <laughs> you didn't say piss once. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah.